is it when it comes to audience that most financial institutions couldn't tell a 70-year-old from a 7-year-old, while other people outside the FI industry intuitively seem to get what audience means and what they need? Ken Akorafor, the founder and CEO of The Humble Penny, has a pound worth of advice. In fact, his advice might as well be worth tens of thousands of pounds to the people who listen to him and absorb the helpful information that he's passed on from a very human and I get it point of view. You're going to hear an incredible conversation today on the podcast where he shares what went into forming his view and some of the things that he struggled with, has learned and is now trying to pass on to his children to build a stronger family, stronger finance, and connections with a very eager audience. It's all here on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody to the Dave and Darm Demystify Show. And this week we have a very special guest, Ken Okorafor from Humble Penny. And if you haven't read any of Ken's stuff, I highly, highly recommend you do because it is such great advice. Ken, why don't you give us a bit of intro to yourself? Because I'd love to know a bit more about how you got onto the Humble Penny, what drove the idea, you know, how you created this awesome style of writing. Wow. So first of all, I absolutely love the intro. And honestly, it does so much for me when you say awesome style of writing, because like I got a C in my English GCSE <laughs> and I never ever thought I was good at writing anything. You know? <laughs> Just goes to show you academic and business, you know, the two often don't quite meet. Do I'm really honoured to hear that because I've always seen my writing as this is me just writing stuff that's in my head. And, you know, I just hope that the ordinary guy on the street, ordinary girl on the street can connect to it. So my writing comes from a place of just simplicity. And I'm trying to connect with people, trying to introduce emotion to writing, communicating some very important facts and things that might help to change people's behavior and so on. Don't just take a step back. Like, how did I even come on to doing the humble penny? And, how did that get created? So I'll probably go back to around April 2017. I was on a flight to Oaks, Pennsylvania. So I had to go for work. I used to work as a finance director for a US NASDAQ listed business. And I often had to fly into America for work. I was on this flight about 36,000 feet and I was looking out the window. And something about that moment, you know, when you're on a long haul flight, you're looking out, it just looks so peaceful and pristine. And I was thinking to myself, do you know what? At this stage of my life, I just feel there's a massive void. Like there was something missing. I felt that although my job was paying me well, I was not really enjoying my job. Like it wasn't bringing me a lot of fulfillment. I felt that I was working in an industry that was making a lot of very rich people 
much richer. Whereas if I looked around me, like I looked at my family, my friends and people who I see every day, you know, people are struggling to get by. So I didn't know that a thing would become something called the humble penny. And I was reading a couple of books on that flight. And part of one exercise I had to do on that flight was to document 10 of my talents and 10 of my passions. And I sat there thinking to myself, what am I good at? Like, what talents do I have? And like, what am I passionate about? What do I actually love doing? And it was a good thing to do because when you're on a flight, you can't like escape, like you're there and you have to sit down and actually do it. So I sat down documenting. And one thing I thought I was good at was I liked teaching people stuff. Like if I come across some information, if I have some experience, I quite like telling people about it, saying, oh, look, I think this is how it could help you. And so, but I didn't know how to put that into words. I wrote that down as a sentence. And then I thought, well, actually, there's some talents I have might be my finance background and stuff like that. My wife and I were having a brainstorm. We're like, oh, you know, what should we call this thing? And we're brainstorming. We're like, we wanted to kind of signify simple beginnings, but we hope that you could one day get somewhere, you know, and a couple of words came together and the words, the humble penny came and we went and searched for it on the website and we found it, it was available for 99p. And we just bought the domain and that was it. It was, <laughs> it was in December, 2017. And I started writing, I wanted to write from the perspective of a black man in the UK who has a family, who's also a professional, but who is trying to get by and trying to do this wealth journey and share the journey. Kind of how the humble penny started. And as soon as I started writing, I often love to introduce elements. You know, I love music. You know, I love to put interludes in my writing. I often stop and like introduce a piece of poetry or a piece of anything. It just means somebody's experience of reading the stuff I do is not just so boring. It's slightly different. And that became my introduction to what has become the humble penny on paper as a blog or a website, which has then expanded into other areas like a YouTube channel and stuff like that over time. Fascinating. So thank you so much. It's interesting to hear that spark that you had in terms of seeing the opportunity. So how quickly did you realize that what you were publishing was actually connecting with people? So when I say writing stuff, the first day we published a blog, I've been working on it in the background, working on WordPress and doing all these things to try and create a website. I didn't obviously have these skills. I was kind of learning stuff as I went along. And on the 3rd of December, 2017, that's the day of the launch, I was so petrified. And I was like, oh my God, like how are people going to take it? People are going to think I'm rubbish. All these imposter syndromes, all these things coming in saying, like, who are you? Who do you think you are? Thinking you're trying to tell people about money. Like how many black men have you seen in the UK telling people about money? Like there were all these negative things I had in my mind and I just had a lot of fear. And as soon as I published it, nothing happened. It went completely silent. No one even liked anything. No one did anything. And then I carried on publishing for about a month or so. And then people started to comment. And this is where I kind of knew, I started noticing, ah, actually, what I'm saying is kind of hitting, like resonating with people. People say to comment, saying, wow, like, I really like the subjects you're covering. People say identifying with me. What's interesting, actually, about creating content is that people identify with you from different dimensions. So some will come and say, hey, I like it because I can feel your values coming across through your writing. I'm like, wow. And other people come and say, well, actually, I like it because you're writing from the perspective of a family man. And others will come and say, actually, I like it because you are a professional. And oftentimes we don't see like people who work in banking or in finance writing like from the heart, like writing what they truly think about stuff. And that's when I started to notice that, well, actually, there might be something here 
And what I needed to do was simply stay consistent. What I liked about it is clearly there's a load of empathy in there, right? I feel like you know my pain as a homeowner or a person that's trying to manage a budget. Plus also, you know, I've dealt with lots of finance people in the past and it's like speaking to a solicitor or trying to read a doctor's signature. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just so difficult sometimes to kind of get simple things across. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's partly the reason why we started this kind of podcast was to demystify complex technology or trends that are going on. Mm. But you're doing it in the finance world and that's what I really liked about it as well. No, thank you. And I think that simplicity is so important because... You know, the industry is full of perceived complexity. And oftentimes, it's, there are almost two parallel worlds. You've got the people who know or think they know and everybody else, you know. And there isn't really much of a bridge between them. I've had to think a lot about how do I create trust with people? Like, how do you connect with them in a way that feels like you're talking to your mum? <laughs> you know, but you've never met them before, but you have to think of a way of building that bridge. And I think that's one thing that's missing in the industry more broadly is that you don't see a lot of bridges and there aren't many, wow, like I can feel this organization truly connects with their customers or their audience or whatever. That's missing a lot in the space. Yeah, I mean, we first started chatting because I'd been doing some research with banks and just the more I'd talked to customers, the more I'd found that they're just not getting the kind of help or guidance from the banks that they need. And there is a crisis of, I guess, financial literacy, mm -hmm. not just in this country, but in many countries. Oh, yeah. And I think nobody seems to be plugging that gap. And I understand like the banks all worry about things from a regulation point of view, but you know, you've got lots of people who are just not in control of their finance. And I was sort of looking because you helped launch the FD Flick campaign, which is about um, lobbying for financial literacy, which I think is a really interesting initiative. But the more I sort of looked at what you were doing, the more I was like, well, this is just really lovely, helpful. I love what you say in terms of that tone, which is like your mother gently talking to you about all of this stuff. You know, certainly in my experience, people feel stupid. They feel out of control. They don't know where to start. The industry did go through a plain English phase where, you know, the regulators were saying you've got to write things in a language that people understand, right? And they did simplify some of the terminology and stuff like that. But what it lacked was empathy mm. and a real understanding for people. And, you know, one of the things that I recently have experienced, Ask Comey, we've been looking at starting the process to raise some funding, right? And our remit is, you know, to help homeowners with all aspects of managing the home. And, you know, our pitch starts with something like 40% of the UK lives paycheck to paycheck. 16 and a half million people have less than a hundred pounds saving, you know, they're moments away from losing a roof over their head, right? And the majority of the friendly VCs, people that I know, because we've raised money in the past on various startups, right? I've said, Dom, I like what you're saying, but is it really a problem? And I'm like, what? What, is it really a problem? <laughs> I mean, like, this is the problem. Is it really that big? And I'm like, what? There is a part of society that is doing very, very well that just don't understand how widespread people struggle, you know? And 
you know, when we went into some of the research, the other thing that was interesting was that the people that are really balancing their budget at a fine level know the difference in terms of cost between putting an extra wash on or putting the heating on for an extra hour. They know, right, which one, and they're making a conscious decision to do that. I mean, that's just a level beyond the guys with the money, right, who just blow extra. I was just sticking on all day. Are you finding it easy to reach the mass? Are you finding there's a big misunderstanding at the wealth level? Oh, huge. I mean, the thing I've personally found, another reason why our message with a humble penny connects with people is because I've come from that place where I haven't had money. Yeah. <laughs> like a lot of people, I haven't just like shown up and had thousands of pounds in my bank account. I'm a first generation immigrant to this country and I had zero. In fact, there was nothing that we had at all. So I've known that place of being so broke. And I've also known that place where you then suddenly start making money. You've got a proper job. You've got a job that even pays you with a pay slip. And suddenly you feel like, oh, I want to show that I'm successful. And you go and buy yourself a really nice Mercedes or you buy yourself a really nice car. You want to move to a really nice area. But then in reality, literally, you've got like zero in the bank or living in your overdraft. But you want to show people that you are succeeding and that you're moving ahead. And what that's made me realize is that having been through that process of going through that journey, it's made me realize that we all have the possibility to move ahead from where we are. And still on that journey myself, talking about it and sharing my own you know story and journey has meant that i've been able to connect with people on a level that they might not ordinarily see people connect with because we don't ordinarily talk about money we don't talk about our money mistakes we don't talk about our failures we don't want people to judge us right but when you start to talk about stuff like that when you say you know what like once upon a time in my life i wanted a rolex i wanted cartier just because my friends in the city were wearing those things and i wanted to look like i belonged when in actual fact if i'm being very honest with you guys I had a void within me. I was lying to myself. And all that stuff I was doing wasn't really the reality. The reality was that I wanted to be accepted. So sharing that kind of stuff, the sharing that vulnerability, yeah. meant that like people on the other side were going, well, actually, wow, I'm in that place right now. And I feel like I connect to what you're saying. That then gave the people on the other side, the people who are still trying to get by, you know, trying to find their way, started to give them a bit of a voice, belief that, you know, they can one day make certain moves with their money and change certain behaviours. They can one day get to a certain place financially. It's almost like there's an awakening in people's heads once you give them something to start their journey. The other thing I like about your content, right, is that you relate to people really well and it's always current. Like you find something that's going on now and you relate back to it. Yes. When you see what banks are writing, it's kind of like, A, it's same thing for such a wide audience be you know it was probably written three years ago and it's still on the website whereas yours is very current and you'll use everything like you've probably done something on squid games right <laughs> yeah no, it's funny you say that because we watched squid game and then we went and re-watched it because we were like hang on a sec because <laughs> i have got a thing where i watch certain shows because i want to learn certain life lessons and you know we watch these things for entertainment right but i often watch them because i as a creator i think to myself like gosh i've just connected a few dots from watching this and the squid game was one of them because like there's a humongous lesson in there around money you know and being in debt and one of the biggest points that came out of watching that show is that 
being in personal debt makes you a target. Yeah. It's a hard thing for people to take in, but it's the reality because for anyone who watched that show, you'd see we're even told in the show that everybody who was a contestant in the games were in the games because they had so much debt that they couldn't possibly ever pay off. And it was interesting that each contestant, they were like, oh, this guy, you're in this much debt, you know, you got sacked from your job, you got made redundant, you've, you know, lost your family, they knew so much. And it made me think, I wonder to what extent we're being targeted in our lives right now, you know, with so many big companies, I can think of so many right now, who know so much information about us. And the more they know about you, the more they're able to push certain products towards you. So people who are in debt are actually, because they're in debt in the show, debt then encourages other habits like gambling yeah. and debt encourages yeah. other behaviors, you know. <laughs> and you think to yourself, oh, this is just a show. But actually it's not, it's not just a show. This is actually what happens in reality. This is actually what we're seeing in people's lives day to day. But what I think the show did was that it helped everybody see it together. It helped us all kind of, watch it together and say, hang on, although this might be a show, this is actually something that's happening in my life. Yeah. I feel like I'm in that place where debt's controlling my life and I don't feel like there's much I can do about it. I certainly you know, resonate with the fact that the best time to get money, borrow money, is when you don't need it. And the worst time to borrow money is when you actually need it, right? Because the options from a bank are so limited when you actually are desperate to borrow money but when you actually got savings and you don't need to borrow anything that's the best time to get money i mean it's just crazy yes. that the industry is upside down like that right <laughs> it's interesting you say that because if you notice more generally i just use the example of credit cards when debt's kind of pushed to people it starts off very small right david and i've talked about buy now pay later previously oh yeah <laughs> It often starts very small. Oh, I've got a hundred pound overdraft. What that does is debt becomes normalized in someone's life, essentially. I.e. it becomes a part of your accepted internal culture. It becomes a part of who you see yourself as, in effect. You see yourself as someone who's okay with always repeatedly being in debt. And when we think about credit cards more generally, credit cards you don't suddenly end up with a £20,000 credit card balance. It doesn't start like that. It often starts with, oh, I had a 5K balance. And then you think to yourself, oh, that 5K then becomes 10K because you've got a letter. Someone said, hey, look, we've noticed that, you know, you've been paying your credit cards or something to that effect. Hey, we've just automatically increased your balance. Call us and reverse it or cancel it if you don't want to. That's a psychological thing. I mean, think about it. I'm trying to think of a term in psychology where you would need to perform an action to undo the access you now have to more credit. But notice though that somebody who's got a 20K balance began with you accepting the culture of living your life or living your lifestyle on borrowing money. It might've started with a small buy now and pay later balance. You might've started with an overdraft balance. You might've started with something quite small, but then you're like, okay, that's fine provided my job can kind of pay for it. And this is how the spiral begins, you know. Before you know it, it's 20K. Before you know it, you've got another balance. And before you know it, it's another. And then that becomes unbearable. And this is how, you know, on a show like Speed Game, people end up becoming targets because the more you have debts, very sadly, the more debts push to you. It's a very warped reality, but it's the truth. You know, the more you have debt, the more people say, well, actually, here you go, have some more of it. And you find a lot of people right now, very sadly, are living a life of shame because 
they have so much debt that they can't even talk about it. And this is what we saw play out in a show like Squid Game, for example. It's fascinating. It's really interesting what you say, because I can completely see how that sort of spiral works. We have chatted a lot about buy now, pay later, and it's interesting. There's more and more research which just shows it is the sort of thin end of the wedge for many people. One thing I wanted to ask you about was your approach of thinking about money in terms of the family unit as well. Yeah. I've done research which shows that people in families don't generally talk about money. But I was very struck by how you're looking at not just the individual, but also the family unit. Would you mind just sort of spending a bit of time on that? Because I think that's a really fascinating piece of thinking. It's interesting you say that because when you look at some of the stats or research around money, what you find is in relationships after infidelity, money is a second biggest reason why relationships fall apart or divorce and so on. Money is a big thing. But we don't often talk about it a great deal. And I grew up in a home where my parents are still married, have been married for over 40 years. But I saw a lot of heads being butted. And the reason why heads were being butted a lot was because they only really talked about money when they got one of those letters that had the red line on it that says urgent. Mm -hmm. You know, like one of those letters. They're kind of sitting on the stairs. And then someone goes, oh, look, there's an urgent letter. I think we may want to look at that kind of stuff. And you think, so, well, actually, hang on, how do you get to a place where you're in a relationship, but then the only time you talk about money is when you get an urgent letter saying, like, we're going to kick the doors down <laughs> or whatever and try and get the money back. And I'd seen my parents, for example, just have fights as couples do when it comes to money. And part of the reasons why they had this fight was because there was no transparency when it came to money. You know, my mum made her money, my dad made his money, and their monies were in their bank accounts, and no one knew how much each person was making. And it was just like, oh, you make yours, you make yours, but we're married and we're in a relationship. But yeah, we don't have a way in which we stop these little arguments when it comes to money. So my wife and I then thought to ourselves, well, actually, you know what, wait, we're getting married, we're going to have kids one day. One thing we want to do differently from a family perspective is actually have a family vision. What do we want for our family when it comes to money? Like, how do we want to operate? How do we remove inequalities when it comes to my wife and I? One person might earn more than the other and so on. Like, how do we remove all that such that we don't have all that aggro to think about and, you know, we have some peace at home? And what we decided was to remove the concept of his and her money from our household. So, you know, whether she makes this much money or whether I make that much money, it doesn't really matter. Because all that matters is all the money flows into one bank account in our home. And then our job, and this is what's interesting about it, our job is we become the deployers of that money. That's our job. We're like the stewards. We look after the money. And our job is to say, well, actually, this is how much we've got in total. Should we deploy it to pensions? Do we deploy it to ISAs? Do we deploy it to kids' activities? And they come up with a methodology around that. But to do that, we have to agree a set of conversations into the future, I call them. So we have money days at home. So ours is the first day of each month where we get ourselves a cup of tea and we sit down and actually talk about money. It's a date in a diary. Because what you find with couples is that they don't really talk about money. So one might be a saver and one might be a spender. 
yeah? <laughs> and suddenly one notices that the other one's gone shopping and bought a handbag or bought a pair of shoes or bought a new phone. And the other one doesn't know about it until like later on. And then that becomes a problem, it starts to butt heads and that starts to have an impact on their relationship. But what I find with the money day is that you sit down, you actually talk and make it fun. Hey, let's talk about our vision, our dreams, our goals. Let's talk about the last month. What's been going on? Like how much did we make? How much did we spend? Are we living with our means? How much have we invested? How are we doing with our plans? What the conversation does that activates money and turns money into a life design tool. So money doesn't just then become like a thing that flows in and out. Money then becomes a thing that helps us design a life that we truly want and also helps us have relationships that actually work. But you need to put certain things in place like the conversation, are we budgeting our expenses when it comes to all these various areas? For example, I take birthdays. I told you guys it's my son's birthday and it's actually Dom's birthday today, right? And we're just talking about this. Birthdays, like how do you deal with birthdays? How much should you spend? Yeah. But without having the conversation, we wouldn't have arrived at £100 for kids, it's you know, £100 for parents, whatever for in-laws. You know, we got to a place where we were able to put certain controls in place such that we were not having random arguments coming up. We were able to say, well, actually, as a family, the vision we've got is this is how we will deal with various aspects of our lives financially, such as birthdays and so on. As your kids get older, will you get them involved in that conversation as well? We already are. <laughs> we see our kids as our co-investment partners. Our son, at the age of seven, has more money in his eyesight than I did in my early 20s. Wow. <laughs> and the reason for that is because we co-invest with them. We discuss everything. When I literally, right, this is how much goes in each month. This month, this is what your money is invested in. For example, our son, when he was three years old, we bought him one stock of Amazon. And that one stock of Amazon has gone up nine times in value. And we often discuss it. Like he asks us, like, how does something go up in value? That concept, how does something go up in price? Or like when he sees something's gone down in price, it's like, where has the money gone, daddy? An investment has lost money. Where has it gone? Has the bank taken it? He's asking me, like, has the bank taken the money? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm trying to explain it. But you see, had we not started this idea of not thinking of the children as just children, but thinking of them as part of the family vision, you know, we would not have got to this place where we are actually having these direct conversations. We're not talking about things like how you create value. Like imagine I'm driving up the road and we see like a chip shop. I'm suddenly pointing to a chip shop and I'm like, guys, what do you think? You see that chip shop? What are they selling? How do you think they make money from there? How do you think that money helps them stay as a business and stuff like that? So those conversations that my wife and I began has now filtered down to a place where money is now an accepted conversation at the dinner table because we can talk about it. We're all in it together and even the kids are in it and they're being educated as part of that process. And I expect them now to do so much better than we have because already they know what interest rates are, they know what inflation is, they know what assets are, they know what liabilities are, they know what expenses are, they know what savings are and investing. And they're still at the age of seven and at the age of one's almost nine now. They are way ahead because we've brought them into the picture, into the conversation. Wow. That's amazing, amazing to hear. I guess it's so obvious when you actually sit down and think about it, but if the parents don't know what they're doing, then they're not going to be in a position to tell their kids. And so I really like how you're dealing with this as a kind of holistic thing. So why aren't the banks doing this? 
I mean, I find it interesting that you've started this, you've done this, but surely the institutions who look after our money should be doing this. Dan says they focused on clear English and all that, and nobody understands what they're talking about. Too generic as well. Yeah. I mean, it's like they're speaking to a broad, very generic set of people, right? Mm. And the products are, are like exactly the same. There's no differentiation. You could probably have the same account whether you're 70 years old, 50 or 10, right? Mm. One perspective coming at it from what we do with the Humble Penny that I think has helped us build that connection with our audience and with the people who approach us in different ways is we started to look at money from a place of service, from a place of serving people. So when we think about like the people we're trying to help out there, we don't just see them as the internet people or like the people out there. We see them as people that we are actually trying to serve in many ways. And what that does is it really takes us on a journey of listening a lot and actually hearing what people are saying rather than just going by what we think is what people need, as it were, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We're spending a lot of time listening a lot. And that comes from a place of literally saying to yourself, well, actually, I'm going to serve my audience because I know if I serve them really well and if I create the things that help to solve their problems by listening to them, then they will connect with me and build that bridge and that's how I would then further create other products or services that might be able to help them and serve them even better. But at the very core, if I had to distill it to one thing, I would say that for us very personally, we've just approached this as we've taken the responsibility for educating our home, so looking after our family, and then we've now taken the responsibility for financial literacy for the wider public and tied to that responsibility is us saying to ourselves that way we build that bridge, the way we truly connect with people is not to assume that we know everything, but to say, well, actually, how can we serve these people? Like, how can we get to their level? Like you and I are talking right now, how can we have that dialogue such that we're able to say, ah, so that's the problem. <laughs> and through listening, then able to say, ah, how about we did this? What do you guys think? And then without beginning to test possible products or possible services, and then being able to create something that helps to solve various problems for people. So I think this is what the banks might be missing, is this piece where, you know, banks almost exist as an institution. Then there are other people, and there's this almost lack of trust that exists. But I think there needs to be a much deeper level of conversation. And that could come through partnerships with other people, for example. I'm so surprised, by the way, that I've not seen banks reaching out to organizations and partnering with them as a way to maybe connect with their customers in a different way. I've not seen a lot of this, but that might be a way in which banks might want to approach doing that. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it seems like a massive missed opportunity. And, you know, maybe that's something that they're all thinking about. The other thing is because you're listening and because you're understanding the problem, there's a lot of authenticity in terms of what you're delivering as well. And I think we live in a very social world. One of the things that the banks lack is that authenticity. I think it's much simpler than that, Dave. You know, the challenge is the bank talks through their brand, right? And that's not a person. Whereas Ken is talking as a person and you feel like whether he's writing 
specifically to you, but you actually are dealing with a person. That's the difference, I think, you know. I think that's a good point. There's a whole conversation around actually what a brand <laughs> is. And that's the point of a brand is it should be the thing that talks to you in a very yeah. kind of person. Listen, Ken, thank you so much for joining us. It's really been a wonderful discussion. Thank you. But thank you so much for joining us. Brilliant. Thank you. I'm honoured in so many ways that you guys asked me to come on. So thank you for having me. And to anyone who's listening, feel free to connect with us. We're on YouTube. Feel free to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just search The Humble Penny. You can also find us on Instagram. It's a bit more fun on Instagram and in we just share on the go. So search at The Humble Penny. And also feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn if you'd love to. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.